podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So welcome to Macklin's Take and this week we have gone international. We are in New York City and right round the corner from Madison Square Garden in Mustang Harry's which is a popular hangout for Mr Matthew Macklin who is joining me as always. He's got some pretty extraordinary tales from his career and he's been telling us a few of them over the course of the last hour or so myself and, and Anna Woolhouse sadly sadly they're not for repetition um, maybe <laughs> boring we can, maybe we can run some kind of competition one day and uh, whoever wins it gets to spend the evening in the company of Macklin and hear some of these hear some of these stories but uh, I don't want to tease everybody a little bit uh, too much and joining us as well we've got Jamie Moore Jamie great to see you as always hello mate and You'll be opening the show on Saturday, we well, believe. Well, hopefully opening, not me. Well, not you, no, but you'll be in the corner, <laughs> striding to the corner with, with Tommy Coyle. Uh, as I said, we're just around the corner from Madison Square Garden. Big pictures of AJ and Andy Ruiz on the side. A big Hugo Boss advert for AJ as well. And a good sense of anticipation about the fight. Uh, we had the open workouts today. Uh, we saw Tommy just coming a little bit early with Carl Frampton and, and uh, Stephen Ward for a bit of food. And... How is he? How is he feeling? Because this is a huge, huge stage, and not one you could really have anticipated him being on. Not yeah, that long no, ago. you're right, and uh, and it's obviously something what he's always wanted to do. Um, who doesn't want to fight in Madison Square Garden? But you know, Tommy, uh, he's always put a lot of pressure on himself. Even you know, going back to the small, smaller venues in Hull Ice Arena, he's always been under a lot of pressure in that sense. And then you you look at the Derry Matthews fight, which is, was his first real step up, was was outdoors at. Um, whole KR ground so you know they're all relatively small compared to Madison Square Garden but in the sense of it you know he's got a lot more experience building up to that so he's so he's he's quite um, good at controlling those nerves and, and dealing with a bigger occasion now so you know which he needs to be Chris Algier is a ex-world champion um, top fighter you know 34 now so he's probably over the you know uh, through the the best part of his career but you know sometimes you always get that so what one last uh, throw of the dice and uh, he's got to be real careful but you know he's he's, he's huge at the weight I, I i feel that that could be an issue um certainly in the second half of the fight it, it could pay pay play into our hands so uh, and tommy's put himself in the in the perfect position to to be able to pull it off if he's good enough and uh, a lot of people don't think he is, but but he's certainly capable of, of pulling it off so, for for me anyway. Matt, it'd be a tremendous story if if he managed to do it because we followed his career closely. It's been a very entertaining career. I remember commentating on his fight against Tyrone Nurse, where he came up just short for the British title. Great effort that night. I suppose the one that sticks out most most in the context of where he is now was a night at Hull Ice Arena where. He beat Raki Noble, who was a Southern Area champion, but took a crack uh, on the eye and there was a little bit of damage there again and we wondered whether, honestly, we wondered whether we might see him too many more times because he had to pull out of a couple couple of fights around that time and here he is two years later on, on this massive stage. Yeah, and I absolutely love stories like this in boxing. I mean, it's great to see the star Olympian turn pro have an unblemished record, you know, guided all the way to the top, great talent, get it nurtured. And, you know, there's many, many, many of those in boxing, but there's also very, you know, there's also a lot of Tommy Coyle stories in boxing. You win some, you lose a few on the way, you, you learn from, you regroup, you come back. And it builds a lot of character and, you know, you've got your, your weaknesses and you, you, you maybe you get, you, you get stopped or whatever, but you, you go back to the gym. You don't let it, you never stop believing in yourself. You it, you know, the word perseverance, sticking with it, going from success is going from one failure to the next without losing enthusiasm. And, you know, if you look at Tommy Coyle, you know, got knocked out to Derry Matthews in a fight he was winning, could have broke his heart, really, could have felt so deflated after that and maybe maybe never come back again. But he uh, he did and then he lost, I don't know, you know, built, built up some good wins, had another loss, came back again. You know, then I think, right, that's it now, had another loss, come back again. And, 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 and it's that tenacity and that perseverance and that and that will to to win and the will to like keep believing in yourself and to keep going and and, and i just i love that i love seeing those stories and it's great when you see someone get rewarded for it and you know win lose or draw on saturday night 
against kids Chris Algieri. Tommy Coyle, when it's all done and dusted, will have fought at Madison Square Garden on the undercard of Anthony Joshua's American debut against the former world champion in Chris Algieri. Regardless of who wins, like I say, win, lose, or draw, um, look, rooting for him, hope he wins, but uh, whatever comes, it, it, it's been a success story. Positivity is a word I think of when I think of Tommy Coyle. You think of his attitude to, to everything in life, really, not just boxing, because what's impressive about him is the way that he's engaged with the community in whole and he's, he's been thinking about life after boxing for quite a long time. He's, he's a shrewd guy. He's, he's, a, yeah. he's, a, he's a clever businessman. So he's really still doing this now because he wants to. That, that's the only motivation for him. And you look at your gym and, and positivity is something that kind of exudes from you and, and Travis and, and all of the lads down there because not that long ago you were thinking that once Tommy finished, then, then you would too. Do you know, I think... The way the, the gym sort of evolved over the last couple of years has really helped Tommy in that sense because you're right, I think he was coming to the stage where he was probably going to, you know, he was, get, he was very successful in his own area with, with the businesses, like you say. He was probably getting to the point in his career where he was going, you know, I can just walk away from this now. I'm probably not going to achieve anymore. Um, but then they came, <laughs> it, they, all, all the lads started to come into the gym just at the right time for Tommy. And... It gave him a new lease of life, enthusiasm. I think in the first time he sparred with Carl Frampton was a massive turning point because Carl jumped out and took his head guard off and said, why don't you fight like that more often? You know, he went in there and boxed him and uh, it gave him real belief in himself. You know, someone like Carl Frampton heaping praise on him. So when, when, when you look at him opening these gyms and trying to give something back to his community, in a, in a way... I believe that's helped him win fights and drag him off the floor when he probably would have had a reason to stay on the floor if he wasn't in a situation where he had a whole sitter looking at him, you know, hoping that he's the guy who's going to help their kids achieve something. And and he doesn't want to let them down. He doesn't want to let them down. So when he fought Brizuela, for instance, he was just setting those gyms up at the time and he was trying to, you know, get the word out there that... This is a guy who, who never quits. You know, he got beat off Derry Matthews, but he's come back and he's not, he's going to keep going until he achieves what he's going to achieve. So then he's been on the floor three times and, he, and he's really, really, you know, he's in a bad way. Yet he gets up and drops, um, he, he drops him with the next punch he throws. So that little window of his life there sort of tells the story of his full career in one little moment. And it gives every kid who's in, in his gym in Hull that belief that as long as you don't give up and as long as you keep, you know, you persevere through tough times, eventually you'll get there. And, and Tommy calls that Madison Square Garden on Saturday night. There's no better story than that. There really isn't. And it's those kinds of fighters when, when you look at them that, as you say, do inspire in a different way to someone like Anthony Joshua, who we'll see on Saturday. And he's done terrifically well. I, I read an interesting, well, an amusing tweet from Enzo Macaronelli couple of days ago where he was just really? saying yeah. yeah he was just saying I think you've all seen it but if you're listening and haven't seen it he was saying Anthony Joshua's done brilliantly in his career I love him he's won the titles all the power to him but I'll tell you one thing he hasn't had to do is sell a load of tickets for a fight night then have a load of people come back to him on the Monday having bought them returning them then you've got to go out and sell them again because different fighters have different challenges don't they and, and we talk a lot about fighters with real records and Crawler's always been a little bit of a favourite because he's he's overcome adversity and I think someone like Tommy Call, you, you can't underestimate just how much he's real, isn't he? You know, people will he's look relatable. at him. People, That's it. The, your, your everyday person in, in, off a council estate can relate to Tommy Coyle. He's a down-to-earth normal lad who they, they could see themselves if they had the dedication and determination to do what Tommy does, being in that position and being like that person. So so he, he's like your local everyday hero. He loves Rocky Balboa. <laughs> you know, I'm sure every fighter or 90% of fighters going up do. But he's literally living a, a, a Rocky story in that sense. He's had so many setbacks. He just never gave up. And, you know, if he pulls this off on Saturday night, Eddie Earn is the man who would be potentially be able to get him a world title shot. What a, what a story that would be. Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. 
a CIA venture. Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to the Desiring Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Well, that that would be very possible because Algeria's at five with the WBO and he would take that ranking if he beats him. And then Hooker, of course, is WBO champion and he's a matchroom. So these are the things that... And he's a clever guy, Tommy. He'll obviously... He, he knows this. He's thinking a couple of steps ahead. I know he's not thinking too far ahead because he's kind of taking it fight by fight at the minute. But anyway, we wish him all the very best of luck. It, it, as you say, it's just, a, it's just a tremendous story. What we now need to come to is the history between the pair of you two because I've had a few people get at me on Twitter since we started doing Matt Thin's take saying, when are you going to get Jamie Moore on? Because every time I put on Sky Sports gold boxing at four o'clock in the morning or whatever, that fight, it's either your fight or Alex Arthur against Michael Gomez. Yeah. Probably the two best domestic fights that maybe we've ever had on Sky Sports. And I think certainly of the, the last sort of 15, 20 years anyway... Um there were just two fights. We had two, both fighters that were actually still improving. You know, they weren't uh, yet went in to a fight that had everyone divided. Um, you know, 50-50 fights. Jamie was the Lonsdale belt winner outright. He was a proven British champion. I think both of us were beyond British title standard at that time. It, was, it wasn't just blood and guts and, um, you know, grit and desire. There was a lot of high-tech skill and tactics and everything that went on in that fight um, and, and um, but of course it, 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 and I, I think we, everyone expected a war and it's very rare when the hype's big and anticipations are high that you exceed expectations but I think that fight certainly did that Just paint the picture for us how did it happen? How was it from your side Jamie? How did it all come about? Because it was a time in boxing, 2006, was it late September 2006? The Manchester wave was just tremendous at that point. Yeah. There, were, there were a few fighters riding it yourself. We mentioned Gomez, he was another one. Whoa. Anthony Farnell, Ricky Hatton. Matthew was up there Matt himself. was part of the scene, exactly. He was, he was in the gym with Billy Graham. Ricky was sort of a year into um, being a world champion just after he beat Costa Zoo. So the Manchester boxing scene was absolutely buzzing at the time. But from my point of view I was waiting to move on to sort of European level and, and I, we, you know we were talking off uh, before we was recording saying about how much the landscape has changed since the, those times we we fought in front of about 1400 people I mean it was a little tiny leisure centre I, I mean to be fair at that time that fight was a it was, it was probably the biggest domestic fight they'd been for a long time and I think or it wasn't big enough to go to the MN Arena they wanted to go to the GMEX but I think the Labour Party conference, conference were on yeah. so the only thing we could get on that day because it'd been put back a couple it'd of times hadn't it twice yeah and it was I like, had problems with my shoulders so, so I didn't want to go into that fight without being so I was never going to be 100% and I don't think anyone is when they go into a fight so I wanted to be close as possible to it we ended up in the George Carnal Centre which holds about 1500 people and I actually got given 49 tickets so I was literally was tactics, going into the Lions then and it was a cauldron and I remember thinking I remember I've had a joke with my pals after saying just as well I got beat because you wouldn't have got out of there alive oh, yeah. oh, the atmosphere was phenomenal and um it had been built, like you say, it, it sort of stewed for a little bit because of the setbacks. Um, but the reason the fight happened was because I, there was no options for me to take other than keeping all the Lonsdale belt. And I felt like... So Steve Wood, I had, a, I had a conversation with Steve Wood on the phone one day and it went something along the lines of, listen, Jay, what's happening now? Are you going to keep all the British title or not? Because Brian Peters has been on the phone and he's basically saying that if you don't give the title up, you're going to have to fight Matthew Macklin. Now, the way he said it to me was like he was threatening me. Not, not, not Steve, Brian. I, I felt like Brian was sort of saying, as if he was holding a gun to me, and saying, you're going to have to fight Matthew Macklin. So I, I said, kind of suggesting that you wouldn't want to. Yeah, exactly. So I said, why does he think that I won't fight Matthew Macklin? I said, I'll f- fight. Can I swear? Can I you to swear? can, yeah, absolutely. I said, I'll fucking fight Matthew Macklin. So he went, no, no, I'm not saying that. I said, nah, listen, that's it. I'm fighting him now. So he said, no, no, listen, we shouldn't be doing that. You don't, it's an hard fight and you should be moving on. Let him, we'll move. I went, no, I'm not doing it, that's it, we're fighting him. 
So it was my stubbornness, really, of what made it happen. Because re- in reality, if I was looking after a fighter, and so I was my own fighter, I would be saying what Steve Wood was telling me to do. I wouldn't have advised myself to take that fight, but my, my ego got the better of me. Was that a plan by Brian? Was that something he, he cooked up? Did yeah, you have think, any input into that? I think there was definitely a feeling, and, and from a common sense point of view, rightly so, as Jamie kind of alluded to, there, it wasn't, it was a bad move to fight me. It didn't, it didn't, it didn't really make, make sense, sense for Jamie, who'd already won the British title outright, to fight me, who at the time was definitely the, the best prospect in British cutting by, by quite a stretch, really. Yeah. Um, so, he had everything to lose and very little to gain. Nothing to gain. Well, he was just staying where he was in terms of a ranking thing. Yeah, it was a, a big fight and it was uh, the, 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 pro, the profile and everything. He got I think, I think, but you know, from a career moving forward it, point it, of view. He didn't do anything for me. And, but I think also, when sort of looking back at it now, thinking about it, I think I've always been a massive boxing fan in the sense of the big fights, I've always wanted to see the best fight the best. And I remember thinking, the fans will love this fight. So, so that, that sort of excited me. We, we got paid pennies, really, in the, in the whole scale of it. When you look at the sort of fights, what are happening now, and if you, if I got paid 30 grand, and I think you got about, what, 10, 15 or something? Yeah, 18, I think. So, you know, it's pennies. It sounds like a lot of money if, if, if someone's got no money, but when you go through what, what we went through and when you think about the scale of that fight or, the, or the, 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 the excitement of that fight compared to some of the fights nowadays, it's, it's madness. I mean, I didn't care about the money because I absolutely believed in myself and I believed that I was going to beat Jamie. I felt that I was ready for it. Uh, you know, I'd been sparring umpteen rounds with Hatton. You know what I mean? I'd, 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 at that point, I think I'd even... I'd knocked out a guy called Alexei Cheek off in a round who was, you know, well, you know, was ranked. The only loss he'd had up to that point was on points to a guy called Corin Gavor, who was, you know, a really good fighter. And um, so I felt, you know, Jamie had a couple of losses. I think he'd lost to who did you lost to at that point? At that point, I'd lost to Ozzie Scott Dur- Dixon, Ozzy Duran on an injury yeah. and a disqualification. So you know. in my mind, I'd only lost one genuine. Yeah genuinely lost to Scott Dixon but I just remember feeling that I, 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 just, I mean I'd, I'd had a good amateur career I remember when I turned pro it was big noise you know I'd, uh, I was ABA champion at 18 and I had probably I think 24 internationals in the last couple of years you know young England uh, my first ever senior bout was a full international for England over in Norway you know my last amateur bout I lost 12-10 uh, on points to the number one in the world at the time a Russian uh, so I really felt after the face Elias having got moved up to Manchester kind of regrouped a little bit I was 23 or going I think maybe 24 and I felt like now nah, I'm ready for this step um, and it was uh, <laughs> I, the, thought, the, I thought I was ready but uh, there's an interview somewhere where I did with the Manchester Evening News and I, I basically said something along the lines of listen let me tell you now this will be by far the best fight anyone watches this year I just knew because I'd seen Matt sparring quite a few times in the Phoenix camp because they was my mates sparred, no, we had never sparred and we was friendly you know we, we'd say hello and we'd have a chat and stuff but you know I was real good mates with Ricky I've not, I'd known Billy since I was 16 so he's pretty close to home for me um, but just just watching him and knowing uh, the, I, I knew I could box a little more than people was aware of at that point in time as well and um, so I knew I'd have to sort of mix it in and we came up with a little bit of a game plan, but I just as soon as Oliver t- sort of put it to me about the way we w- would approach the fight, I went, "That's going to be some fight," and he went, "That's the, that's the way to beat him." And it was, it, and it, it proves to be the case. But it even ex- exceeded anything what I imagined it would be. How was the pressure being the Manchester fighter? I know Matthew was training in Manchester, but not not a Manchester fighter because we mentioned the success that the city had had in, in the years before that and you know that that's a great thing and you get well supported but you're expected to win yeah it, that can motivate you it can push you don't forget though it's not just the pressure of being at home it's the, I also had the pressure of fighting um, a fight where I felt like I should have been past that point and beyond I shouldn't really be doing it so it was sort of a little bit of a backward step in this or I was giving Matt the opportunity really to gate crash the scene I had nothing really to gain from it so, so that adds more pressure. Um, <laughs> I saw I had a young son, and 
Colleen was five months pregnant, so you've got to imagine her sat ringside watching that sort of fight as well. So there was loads of scenarios going through my mind, but I felt, and when, when, I, when I look back at it, I, I did have quite a bit of experience, but nowhere near as much experience as I thought I had. Um, but I felt like I was ready, to, I was equipped to, to, to deal with whatever came up, but and I little, I think, little did I, think, I know. I think Jamie's experience, game plan and tactics were key on the night. I mean, I remember, I mean, look, Jamie was a, was a big like middle. I was just humongous at that yeah, time. Yeah. You know, it hurt me to make the weight, but I think I was far too fired up. I come out too quick, and once I started the pace, I kind of, I couldn't, I mean, obviously I tried to slow down, but he didn't allow me to slow it down because when I, obviously he knew, look, he, it must have been in his tag with Spokey, he knew, look, set a pace, he won't be able to keep this going. So when I did think, shit, I've gone a bit quick here and I tried to wheeze back, back and box. He stepped on me. He made me f- keep that pace up. So, so he that, must that have known. Tactics. He must have known, look, he throws big shots. He puts a lot into every shot. He jumps around. He's big at the weight. You know, he's not going to be able to keep this up. And I remember, I remember coming back at the end of the third round, sat back on the stall. And I remember, it was almost like a blur. I was that tired. I remember thinking, I remember this thought vividly remember thinking I wasn't this tired after doing the 15 rounds on the body belt the week before which is like basically your dress rehearsal yeah, yeah, yeah. to see that you're fit enough and I was I, this was the end of the third round and I remember feeling way more tired than I did do after yeah. the 15 and I remember thinking how the fuck am I going to get through this <laughs> but before the fight when you're in the dressing room or on the day of the fight when you're, you're killing time you're waiting to go to the, to the venue did you both have it in mind that this was going to be, this was going to be what it turned out to be, and that, and that somehow there were going to be points, probably more than one, where you were sat on a stool, feeling like you just described yourselves feeling, and you were going to know I'm going to have to really dig down here and find something I've never found before because if I can't do that, he's going to beat me. Well, I think, did you both think that about no, each other? I, I don't think you no, did. I don't think I did. I, 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 if I'm honest, and that's, I, what, I, that's I, the I, reason I feel like I won the fight because I knew I was prepared for that. Yeah, no, I, 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 if I'm being brutally honest, I thought I was going to go through Jamie. I thought I was too big, too strong. I'd had the, even though he was more experienced as a professional, I'd had a much more extensive amateur career and you know I felt that Billy Ricky everyone had kind of you know knew that sparred with Jamie and I, and I was I was confident they were confident well that Billy was confident and I just I just felt like I was ready and I just thought I'd be too big too strong hit too hard See, what? and I think Billy's probably overconfidence in it probably rubbed off on me a little bit too yeah, yeah. see well, you got to imagine up until that point I'd been the biggest stronger fighter going into most fights so I, so I, I was. A I think you surprised fighter. a lot of people that night at your tactics and your skill and your technique. I, and you know, I, I was a pressure fighter first and foremost. So, so high output body puncher, very similar to Matt, but Matt was a bigger, stronger version of me. So I remember vividly going into the gym with Oliver to start sort of setting out the the tactics, so to speak. And I said, so he said to me how do you think we go about this fight? And I said, well, I think we box him because everyone's going to expect me to come and stand toe-to-toe with him, but I think that'll be suicide tactics. And he said, you're right. He said, but we can't run because if we run, he'll run you over. So I remember being stood in the ring thinking, well, how the fuck am I going to win it then? So he said, um, he said, you have to sit right in front of him. You've got to make him miss. He said, because he'll take a lot of gas out of his hand by making him miss. He said, and he, he, he put a video on and he said, watch his rhythm, read his rhythm. He comes in and he goes, pop, 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 pop. And he steps off, has a little breath, some little faints. So he's got you thinking that he's going to come, but he's recovering. And then he goes again, pop, 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 steps off, little rhythm, little dips of his head. Then he goes again. He said, in them little pockets, you've got to jump on him. So I said, that's going to be some fucking fight. He went, I know he said, but that's the way to beat him. You've got to fight him in between. You can't let him recover. So that's the reason why the fight was like it was. So as it played out in your head, Matt, as you were going through the fight and you described how you felt in the corner after, what, three, four rounds and how hard it was it was for you, did you get the feeling that you were into uncharted territory where you didn't really 
know for sure how you were going to respond to it whereas you felt that it was kind of more charted hard though it was was that the difference between the two of you would you yeah, say J- Jamie was very much um, boxing with his brain he was being smart he was being clever he was sticking to his tactics he was go- boxing to instructions he had, a, he had a plan and he was executing it but I didn't have a plan I, I, to this day I couldn't tell you what the plan was I just I think I just thought and Billy just thought <laughs> whose who's fault was that no, though seriously whose fault was that though well I suppose Billy Billy's probably, I think Billy definitely thought I was too big too strong hit too hard thought I was too good for him and he thought I was going to go through him and I thought I was and I mean like I say at the end of the third I was that tired after the third round to be honest with you it, it's a blur to me the fight from the, from the third to the ten I can remember the first three I remember I remember sitting down at the end of the third I remember feeling that and, and then there's a point in the fight where Jamie gives me a little jab in the body at the end of the round and we have a conversation. <laughs> he knows oh, what he ter- said. Therapist, like. Right. And, uh, I know what that conversation was I about. Did, I did now. this today with as well. It was like as if I was touching gloves, but I'd, I'd sort of punch him in the solar plexus and yeah. knock him sick a little and, bit. And, and other, other, than that, other than that point and the end of the third round, I don't. the fight's just a blur to me because I was literally just fighting on adrenaline because I remember thinking every round was my last I, I'd, I felt like I had nothing left from the third round but some, I don't know where I was getting the energy from I suppose it was just hot and desire I think, That's exactly I, think it. I just wanted it so badly I, I think I just wanted it so much that and I think I, I think I was maybe in denial that I'm tired I was I think I was just fighting through it like this isn't happening I was just refusing to quit because I, I was that tired and it was just it was just autopilot I was just on adrenaline at that point I'd been hurt a couple of times as well in previous fights but I think that sort of gave Billy certainly false hope in the sense that he would walk through me but I used to get hurt because I'd get um, overconfident and I'd leave myself open because my momentum coming forward sort of doubled the impact in the shots so I'd I'd be on you know applying pressure working someone over and then I'd walk into a stupid shot it'd be a flash knockdown but so like Michael Jones in the in the third fight with him he had me bad trouble because I walked into a, a big shot so it wasn't like I couldn't hold a shot it was that I was I was putting do, myself in trouble do you know what really? I think was a big factor as well in the fight so obviously we were both very uh, offensive minded fighters we were both come forward high pace body shots big shots exciting, real exciting fighters and all the work I did with Billy was all attack 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 powers you know all this sort of thing where Jamie's defence defensive skills was a massive factor in the my, fight my, my defence won me that fight he slipped and slided on the rolls he pivoted turned me on the ropes you know he, he, he had a plan and, 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 and he had you could see he'd worked on all those moves he was slipping sliding rolling the shots I was my defense was basically with my nose, you know what I mean. <laughs> I was just blocking shots with my my jaw and my nose. It was just like I mean the shots I took really yeah, and was, was unbelievable. But it was uh, all them Jamie's those little default defensive moves. What I was doing, we worked on him for three months, every single day. So by the time it comes to like I say a month before the fight, every time someone threw a right hand left up to me, instinctively I slipped and rolled. And you, you, you're watching the fight. Every time he throws a right and left hook, I, I come underneath it. And then as soon as he sits in the pocket and starts punching, I, I go. I go straight away. In fact, if, you wanna, if anyone and wants Jamie to watch the, the fight... shorter shots, and I was coming wide with the shots where Jamie stayed... Li- listen to Oliver in the corner. You, you'll hear him every now and again. You hear him shout, now, now. And he starts banging on the, on the ringside apron. And I'm... I'm tired myself, but you can see I just sort of take a big deep breath and just go because there was the opportunities I had to take. That, that's interesting, even through the kind of fog when you're really, really tired, that you, you can hear those kinds of instructions. Because I do often wonder how much can you really you can hear pick a from voice your out. trainer you, 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 You're that going used on. to hearing that particular voice that you do pick it out of the crowd. Hey everybody, this is Moto G Pete from the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Nokomoto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. Watching it, um, as I was on, on TV, 
what struck me about it was, firstly, it looked really hot inside that arena. It, was, it, was it looked really, yeah. really hot. It, it looked was, tight. It was a heat wave on it at the time. It looked yeah. absolutely packed. I lost twelve pounds during the fight. The, the atmosphere was was tremendous, and I remember looking at it and, and the pace being set, thinking there's no way this can go twelve rounds, just no way. And then you get past the halfway stage, and you're getting nearer the finish line. Then, and I'm thinking. Maybe it can go 12 rounds, but yeah. uh, with, with the two of you, at what point, I don't know if this happens to fighters in fights or not, but was there a stage where you're beginning to think to yourself, I'm, this is getting dangerous now, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into the red zone here, I've got nothing really well, left. I don't think I had enough common sense to think that, I was just full steam I, ahead and just kept going. Yeah, and I was too tired myself. By the, by the seventh and eighth round, I think if you, by the time you get to, start, when you, we go from sort of the sixth to the seventh round. You can see the the, the quality of the shots dramatically dips, and, and it's just a case of um, you know determination and heart and stuff like that. But I, I I remember going back to the corner at the end of the ninth round, and Oliver said he's finished. I promise you, he's finished. He said you need to listen to me really carefully. Forget hooks and uppercuts. Basic one-two. He said, straight down the pipe, one-two straight down the middle. And, you know, as it happens, that was the shot where I finished it. But it wasn't necessarily the shot. It was just exhaustion on Matt's part, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, Jamie hit me with... I couldn't, you can go down and watch that video. and It hit me much better shots all night long, bounced them off me. But at that stage, I was the tank was... I think I'd be, it'd been empty for a while. Yeah, I was yeah. gone, I'd gone, the, the needle had broken, red, and uh, you know, it was, but it, and it was a good, accurate shot when I was completely nothing left, and it, it got the job done. But it was, um, it was at it, that point, though. I don't if, think. I so, think to so answer think that question about anyway at that point. was you, was was you scared? At no point did it ever even contemplate. Didn't, didn't cross my mind until I walked off and I turned around and he'd not moved at that finger. Now that was the scariest thing I've ever seen. It, honestly, my stomach sank. It was horrible. Well, that's the thing about... It's one of the many things that makes boxing so so different to other sports. When you see somebody win by stoppage, it's it's almost like you kind of draw this invisible line down, down the centre of a ring. And it's like two rooms. From ringside, it's like looking at two rooms. You've got one where everybody's celebrating and it's and it's... You know, just jubilation, and you've got the other where it's just total and utter desolation and despair. But at the end of a fight like that, firstly because you were so tired, but secondly because you clocked immediately fear. what was going on. That's the only, the, the, the only, the only word I could say is fear because it, I was scared. I mean, uh, I've only got one blurry memory of uh, being in the ambulance, and uh, it's it's like blurry. And then the next thing I remember, I've, I'm awake and there's. Me, Dad, Mom, Billy, Kerry. I think Jamie, Ricky Hatton was there. I think Jamie and Steve Wood were in the just hospital me. as well. No, oh, yeah, I, just, I been, just come. Yeah, me yeah, we had been in the hospital, and uh, um, you know, there was a lot of people, and they were just kind of going. Obviously, I couldn't remember anything at that point about the fight, but they were all just going. I remember Kerry Kay's going. Matt, you, you, you've never seen a fight like this. Yeah. It was just unbelievable. You, you won't believe it when you see it. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know, uh, you know, it was just. They were consoling me, but also in, it was it was a weird way they were kind of like going. It was number. They were more talking about just the what a number fight. fight. It had just been more so than oh, rather than doom and gloom. You got beat. They're just going. This yeah. fight's unbelievable. Wait till you see it. How long did it take you to watch it? The next day, <laughs> I got out. I got, I checked, got checked out at hospital. I actually seen him the next the next morning as well because my son was up all night with an ear infection. So I've gone in A and E to try and see the out of hours doctor and see Matt on the way out of the hospital as well. So yeah, I got up. I'd been peeing blood all night. Um, then when I got out, I had the brain scan and I, I kept me on a drip I, to rehydrate me. For, and I was uh, completely exhausted. And uh, so kept me overnight. Let me out that day. And when I went home, I watched it that night straight away. I mean, boxing was the be all and end all really yeah. in my life. And I wanted to see what happened and. You know, it was, it was, I had a tough year after that because, you know, obviously I was never going to fight that side of Christmas. It was a very draining fight. Then when the January came, I was meant to box the end of January against a guy. Um, I think I pulled out. I got the flu a week, couple of weeks before. Then I was meant to box on a show uh, in Ireland for the Irish middleweight title. Uh, bruised my ribs in sparring. That fell out. Then I was meant to box, I think, 
in May and RTE pulled the plug television network in Ireland didn't do the show so you know at this stage now you know I'm coming off a loss and I'm really frustrated I'm hurting really I want to get back in there and get my career going and you know at the same time then it's going to 2007 I'm over in Vegas and my gym buddy and friend Ricky Hatton who's hitting the heights now and you know I'm thinking well what about my you know what I mean I feel like my career's yeah. not happening for me and you know I turned pro at 18 under a, a big a lot of hype and you know I've lost two I haven't even won a British title I'm just thinking oh no do you know what I mean yeah. this is like I'm like really depressed and uh, it was a tough year and I come out with a few wins but it was uh, but like, that's why when I say I said earlier about Tommy Coyle I appreciate it and these fighters that come from setbacks I've been there you know and I wasn't I wasn't one I wasn't a fighter that turned pro with no expectations I turned pro with massive expectations massive hype like, I believed I was going to go all the way and you know but by the age of 26 I think when I was going into the Alcock fight I'm fighting for the British title again I've lost two fights I'm thinking if I don't win this fight I'm obviously not as good as I think I am you know and uh, it was mad really because I think the Alcock fight was 2009 September so no the March it was it had basically been two and a half years on from the fight yeah. but then in the September I won the European title fight and I was you know gate crashed the top, top five and then yeah. you know won there it's see, mad how it see, happens and, and then you look at my my career from that point as well was so stop uh, stop start because of injuries. So where where you would have expected me to push on and and I did you know I got a, a, a I got a number six in the uh, WBC world ranking straight off the back of the, uh, the that win. Um, but in inactivity in that sense, you know, couldn't get any momentum going whatsoever. I ended up having four operations in in three years. Um, I still fought eight times. How I managed to do that, I don't know. But there wasn't really meaningful fights. There wasn't pushing my career in the direction I wanted wanted it to go to. And even though I won uh, the European title, um, I, fa- I, I remember, th- th- you know, weight wise, I I was crippled at the weight by that point as well. But I'd worked so hard to get to that point. I wanted to try and get a world title shot at light middleweight and. And by the time I got beat off Ryan Rhodes, basically my career was finished. And it, was, it seemed like over that three-year period, I'd had four operations. I'd never got any momentum going. And my career had sort of fizzled out and it not really moved on anywhere from, from the, the Macklin fight. And when you look back on that fight, you, you mentioned the amounts that you got paid for it. And, and given the standard it was, because it was... It was higher than the British title fight. I mean, everybody would agree on that. It was an absolutely incredible fight. And the amount you put into it and inevitably the pieces of you it would have taken because fights like that do, you must look back on it with, with huge pride. But that that fight was... It's boxing all over in a way. It was about the glory, wasn't it? Because you, didn't, you didn't get the financial reward for that fight that you should have got well, but people remember it well, well that's it Andy we were, we were outside Madison Square Garden earlier filming a piece for Sky and we were talking about B-sides and A-sides and I was saying look when, when did you know, splits and B-sides and A-sides become the, the main thing that fighters talk about yeah that's for the businessmen to speak about but what about the fighters wanting to be the best to fight the best because they want to prove they're the best because they believe in themselves you know and that time like I say with me and Jamie put I didn't even care about the money. I didn't remember Brian saying 18 grand. I was like, yeah, I don't care. I just want the fight. And, you know, Jamie, being a proud man, thinking, I ain't getting chased out of my, you know, title. Like, like you said, you got exactly. your back up before I'm not like, doing that. So that's that's pride. You know, that's wanting to prove you're the best. That's believing in yourself. Like, that's where, whether you're right or you're wrong, like, I believed in myself and I got it wrong, but... but- I believed in myself and I was willing to, to put my body on the line and put my reputation and my ranking on the line because I was putting my, not you know, people say put your money where your mouth is I put myself where my mouth was and sometimes now you see a lot of these big fighters and they're great fighters and I'm not knocking them but sometimes the hide behind the network or the hide behind the B side or the A side or the or who, way split it. you know just be willing to do the fight let the, let the businessmen worry about when it when I turned professional stuff. one of the lines what in the local paper as I said listen Nigel Ben's my hero you know he's my favourite fighter and the, the the question had been something along the lines of what do you want to achieve as a fighter and I said listen as long as the crowd go away and they've been entertained after they've come they've paid their hard earned money to watch me fight then I'll be happy and I think that a little bit of that was in the decision making of boxing Matt because I, I, think, I knew I, I knew we were, what sort of fight it was going to be I think we were both 
probably a little bit throwbacky-ish for our time definitely, anyway. You definitely. Know, it was, um, you know, the, even though you, you, you didn't see many people who were still very much uh, either at their best or, not, or, or I wasn't at my best, who were still improving, willing to go into such a difficult 50-50 fight at that stage of the career. Like they, you, Most people would just manoeuvre away from each other, but we, we, we were... There's not many British-level <laughs> title fights what's still being spoke about 13 years later you know so so for me i never i never even got the opportunity to fight for the world title but but i've left my mark or we've left our mark on british boxing just with that one fight on its own so so to me that's worth a, a world title because you the respect of your peers and the and the sport what you've you've loved all your life to have the, the respect of the people who who watch that sport it, that's like that's as good as a world title and now you're a trainer, those kinds of fights, would you say they come along less frequently now than maybe they, they used to? I mean, it wasn't that typical, to be honest. It wasn't that typical well, a kind a of fight more money involved you now. did it. There's a lot more money involved now, which makes, makes people more cautious because they're less likely to take a risk because they know that the loss is a lot more than it would be if, you know, when, it, when we was fighting. And I just think that... Um, it's more of a business. They're not really doing it for the glory. Like Matt said, he said he would have fought for nothing and I would have done the same as well. Me at that time, I, 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 money was just, yeah, yeah, whatever, secondary. You know, obviously I'm, I'm going to get paid, but I wasn't, if I was getting 18, 20, 25, it was irrelevant to me. I wanted the fight, I wanted to win the title and I wanted to move on and I believed that keep winning, chase the glory and the money will come. You know what I mean? I was chasing to become the best I could be to be world champion and when I'm world champion I'll make money anyway I wasn't I wasn't really too sidetracked on how much I was getting and is the more you know what I mean it wasn't money was just not the motivator it was completely a secondary thing maybe maybe not even secondary I was just chasing the glory I was chasing titles rankings and you know money for me was I just believed it'll come come in the end Carl Frotch said the same thing to us a, a few weeks ago, didn't he? That he was boxing for the belts. The belts are what he wanted, and, and he never really cared about the money too much. But it did come later in his in his career. I mean, yeah, when I say I didn't care, I, I cared about it and I wanted it. But I, what I mean is, I wasn't. It wasn't a decision-making factor. It wasn't an issue because what I was doing, I was chasing the top. I wanted to be world champion, and I believe once I get there, the money will come anyway. So I wasn't thinking strategically about the money. Of course I wanted to make money, but I believe the money will come yeah. with the glory. I remember when Liam Walsh was fighting Javonte Davis uh, a little while ago before he had that incredibly long absence from the ring. And Davis was a, still is a Mayweather fighter and Floyd Mayweather was over and they were doing their usual thing, which doesn't really do an awful lot for me, to be honest. And, and Liam Walsh was very dignified in the face of it. And one of his replies to the kind of fairly trademark brashness was some people are that poor all they've got is money and you've never struck me as somebody who's been overly motivated by by money because is that, is it, that it's not it's not an important thing to me everybody needs money to put food on the table and to put a roof over your head but is that is that an important thing so you know health i've just lost one of the closest people who I, I ever could have lost I lost my uncle yesterday I lost my great auntie um, not long ago these certain things crop up in your life every now and again no what happened to me in Marbella five years ago was such a massive life changing experience because I was laid there the next day thinking if, if this could have changed you know Matt, 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 Matt understands this he was around in that situation at the time and it was a horrendous situation I, my, my kids could have lost their dad so every every single um, event what happens in my life and every every moment I get to spend with my kids I appreciate it so much more now than I would have before because I haven't had that I wouldn't have had that fear or that scare of not being in that situation and I just think you know m- m- money's money's essential but but God, if, if that's what motivates you, if it's not the love and the being surrounded by people you're loving and you care for, then what really, what are you on this planet for?
Yo, I'm DK, co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast. My best friend Rip and I host five-star athletes, celebs, business leaders, comedians, and coaches from around the world. Each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on life's in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the One Stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan, New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts, One Star Recruits. I mean, it's obviously been difficult with with Oliver passing away. Um, It's still very raw. It's still very fresh. But what was just so heartwarming about it was was how universal the, the respect and the love for him was and, and how everybody spoke about him in exactly the same way which was here was somebody who really wasn't in it for himself who really did want to put his fighters at the forefront who really didn't enjoy getting on camera and doing interviews because plenty of people say they don't really like it but then actually they kind of do like it and begin to wonder why they're not being asked more whereas he just, he just wasn't bothered in the slightest he, he, he absolutely shunned the limelight for the sake of the fighters he, that, that's all he ever wanted to do he never he, he, he was again he, so he was a coach who, who was trying to chase the glory for his fighters and, and I've took a lot of those lessons on board what he, what he taught me um, he, he was never in it for his own ambitions and goals so he, when I started to train with him he said to me what do you want to do what do you want to achieve and I said I've always wanted a Lonsdale belt, that's it. And he said, you can get that. He said, you're easily good enough. He said, listen, I'm telling you now, I can get you to at least European level. Anything after that will be down to you and your dedication, your discipline, your sacrifices. But I know you're capable of doing it. Just give me the opportunity. Now, when I first started training with Oliver, there was me and him, just me and him in the gym for nearly two years. So so really, Matt, I'll tell you, to have that one-on-one time with somebody for two years is worth 10 years. You know, it really is, and uh, I, I'm blessed to, to have been able to have spent so much time with someone who's got had so much wisdom. Well, one thing I always found with Oliver was he had a real kind of peaceful serenity, calmness, placidness about him, a real gentleman, and I never, never ever heard him slagging anyone off. I never heard anyone slagging him off, you know, and in, in, in such a, at times, a bitchy industry like boxing, you know. That's quite a statement. Well, that's something that always fascinates me about boxing. And, and if we get to speak to Lou this week, Lou DeBella, then it'll be something I'm asking him, certainly, is I don't really know how you managed to maintain the kind of state of zen that, that, that you definitely managed to, and, and, and I think you did a pretty good job with it too, when people like to say, oh, it's, you know, it's just business, and by that they're trying to imply that it's not personal but, but boxing's really personal I mean it can't when, really be any more personal and uh, you know when people say that Andy that for me that sets alarm bells off because you know what that means I'm going to rip you off at some point I'm going to rip you off so I've always been really conscious of that and I've surrounded myself with people who I trust who I feel like uh, who I get a good vibe off um, and, and if anyone ever says, listen, it's just business, then I try and stay clear of it because you're right, this is, I'd say 95% of people are in this business, this selfish, selfish short-term game, no long-term goals. And I've always said, I mean, I, I, like you said, I was trying to get out of the training game in a, in a sense two years ago because I've just never seen any longevity in it. I didn't like the business, but... I feel like I've got a good group of people now who I trust who, who were in it for the same reasons. All, all, when Carl Frampton came to me and he said, listen, about the money, and I said, don't speak to me about money. You're out, you're out, the reason why we're sat having this conversation is money. and So let's not have it. If I, if I do the job right, I'm sure I'll get paid what I'm entitled to. And that was it. And that's how it should be. Because as long as we, like Matt was saying, he felt like if he... If he aimed for his achievements, you know, world level and stuff like that, the rewards would come with it. And so, that yeah, I mean, just going on what James said, you know, about the, what you said about you know, it's not personal. I mean, it's your blood, sweat, and tears. It's your hopes and dreams. It what can be more, be personal, more personal, than personal than that? Than that. <laughs> that, that, see, that was exactly my point. It's, it's. I, I'm kind of the same when when somebody trots out that line. I do just think, hmm. 
first chance you get, you're going to pull a swift one and then try and say it's okay by explaining that it's not personal, it's just business. And I told you that, so you should have expected this but, but, to you know, happen. But as well, at the same time, and you can't take it personal because because the, if they give you that warning and then you do get, you have to just write it off and go, all right, Sam, but you know, you won't get me with that one again. And uh, and you just you mark it off as a lesson. Life, life's life's full of lessons. You just got to take them on board and learn from them. When you think about what you just said, though, the kind of people you surround yourself with, I mean, I don't think it's any coincidence, the kind of characters that you've got in that gym. I don't think it's any coincidence that you know Steve Wood was so heavily involved in your career because he's always struck me as being a really... He's a genuine person. So Steve Wood shooter. is a businessman and he doesn't need to be a boxing manager. So that in itself tells you something. He loses three, four, five thousand pounds every show he puts on except for Jolly Boys at Christmas, which he then puts back into the pot to lose the year after. So that th- w- w- what better reason to put your trust in someone's career who you know is solely to help you achieve whatever you want to do? So he managed me from my first fight to my last fight. And did he make mistakes or did we as a, as a team make mistakes along the way? Absolutely. You know, but we learned from him and we moved on and Steve's probably guided people's career in a better way now because of the mistakes we made with mine so I'm, I'm alright with that because somebody else has benefited from my mistakes so that's, that's cool with me because I'm, I'm happy you know I'm content I'm, I didn't achieve what I wanted to achieve as a fighter but I'm, I'm doing that as a trainer now and I get as much fulfilment from that as I ever would have as a fighter anyway when you look at the it's interesting you say that because sometimes when I look at, at Joshua and He's, he's huge. I mean, he's absolutely massive now. But what I, what I like about what he's done outside the ring is that he's got a group of people around him who he knows really well. And some of them go back years. And in boxing, you could sometimes question whether that's such a great thing. Are people really qualified to be doing some of the jobs they end up doing? But they're all a young group, and they're all kind of learning together. And that's been something that he's been quite quite big on. Um I just wonder what you think about that when, when you look at the way they've gone about things. Yes, he signed with a big promoter, but at the same time, he's kept it quite kind of... He's kept it quite close to home. I think in an ideal world, ideal world, you go with a big promoter, established promoter, someone like, you know, in America, Bob Arum. If you're in uh, England right now, I think Eddie Hearn's the best. He's got the platform at Sky. Um, I think you need a good, strong manager... Uh, but then I think you also it, it, I think in an ideal world you'd have two managers the experienced influential um, guy who can pull strings get you opportunities understands the business knows the game but then you but he's probably got he's probably managing lots of fighters and has done over the years and he's got the contacts and the relationships but then you need someone that just want just, just cares about you just care what's best for you maybe it's your dad or your uncle or a brother or something like that you know maybe a trainer that you've been with a long time that I'm not in the, the boxing business I'm just in the Jamie Moore business and then but then with, with that loyalty and that um, sort of complete attention on you maybe he hasn't got the experience and the relationships and the contacts and the know-how so I think in an ideal world you, you, you'd be co-managed you'd have the you'd have the the, the sort of expertise consultant type one and then you'd have the daily relationship with like a father figure yeah. don't, very don't, close and don't forget AJ's got the um, the the benefit of being who he is so so he, he can have, he's in a powerful position where he can go to Eddie and say you know listen this is the, or, or he put himself into a position where he goes, this is my team and you've got to deal with them because you know you can't just be any old fire and go send your manager or you, you know your mate from high school you trust to go you go and deal with Eddie Earn Eddie Earn go get, think, get out of town you know, I'm not dealing with you I think one of AJ's secret weapons is without doubt uh, Robert McCracken you know he's guided his career he knows him from since he was an amateur he knows his strengths he knows his weaknesses uh, he knows when, it, when he's been ready to step up when he's not ready he's seen him every day he's seen him like come from like you say the, the England squad from day dot so he's watched him grow and develop um, and he's been a massive massive part of that and, and um, as a mentor not just as a trainer uh, he's known what he's ready for when he's ready for it what styles he's not really good at what makes him tick what doesn't and, uh, and he's, he's a guy that 
doesn't want the publicity, sits in the background, but, you know, cute as a fox, watching everything, no ego. And uh, that, I think he's a, he's a real secret weapon that Joshua's got. He's a, he's a key part of Joshua's team. Absolutely agree with that. A bit of a change attack, but I, I have to mention this whilst we're talking to you. We talked about the Hearns there. I read your book, which is very, very good fun. And I read three within a short space of time. Yours, Curtis Woodhouse's uh, and Gomez's. And they, they are, I mean, the stories in those three are pretty much they're on the Macklin scale and um, oh the, I don't know the, the, one, I don't know about that <laughs> there's one I absolutely love though which is when you and Brody, Michael Brody, go to Las Vegas with Barry Hearn and yeah. he takes you to a Simon and Garfunkel concert oh. and, and you're, but you're ordered to go to a Simon he and Garfunkel concert uh, and, to be fair, and we, you're basically ordered to sing along and you we, just, we, 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 just we, felt, we, we felt like we should go because he'd been good enough to take us to Las Vegas it was the first time I'd ever been to Vegas so I was ve- obviously very grateful for him taking us and he was like Listen, we're going to Simon and Garfunkel and my Brody's face. Do you know what? I quite enjoyed it, but he didn't. He was he sat there and pulled his face all the way through. <laughs> but when, when you think about moments in your career where when you were growing up boxing, you know, a young kid running around Salford, you end up in places that you could just never have imagined. I mean, that, that, that's one, isn't it? But when, when you think about where this boxing life has taken you uh, and where it's still taking you now, because you were here before Christmas with Rocky Fielding, this is not your first time at Madison Square Garden. Exactly. And I've been here five times now in the last two years. And before that, I'd been once. Uh, it was the first was time with me. So the first yeah, time yeah. was with Matt. So the first time I came and Matt... I said to Matt, oh, Colleen's not going to be happy because um, we always said that we've got a New York together and Matt was good enough to, to pay for it to come out as well. So, we've, uh, I mean, God, me, me and you have been through some times <laughs> over the years, not, you know, going right back to our fighting days and then, you know, par- par- powering up afterwards and, and, and as fighter and trainer and then everything was happened since. So, I had, I had that conversation today walking down um, Fifth Avenue with all the lads saying, how can this be work? You know, we're, we're being paid to be in, in New York, experiencing some things what you know the majority of people will never experience. And it's it's just amazing. And but years ago, you stayed up till four o'clock in the morning to watch to all watch those fighters fighting in venues like this. And I remember being in the MGM Grand in in Las Vegas, and hundred percent when I was in that Simon and Garfunkel concert, thinking I'll fight here one day, and I never did. But I'm quite sure that I'll be in the corner one day with someone and I've no doubt about it well I think that's a, a decent place to to leave it although just to go back just one more time to that fight that you had people talk often about when two boxers have shared that kind of experience that it gives them this sort of unbreakable bond that just stays intact forever I mean you two are friends now anyway but that's a real thing isn't it because you've shared something that no one else can really possibly understand. I mean, it was hard to understand that fight, just watching it, as I said earlier on. It was hard to understand how you could manage to, to keep going and where the desire and the, and the will came from. And there's only two people who really will ever understand it, and it's, it's the two of you. Well, well, that fight was definitely a night where I think I bared my soul. And obviously Jamie did that too. So I know what that took to do that. And I know that I wasn't going to give up, and neither did he. And no, it, it was just one of those fights that no one was giving in. And you know, even if that <laughs> death, I suppose, not that you're thinking about that, but you just—it's just not an option. And you, you know, get to that point, though. You, you do get to that point where that—that that would be the next stage because you wouldn't quit. You would never quit. And you know what? How deep I kept digging and digging and digging. So did James. So you know, the respect that garners for yeah. somebody. That's what it is. So, so you talk about that bond or that, you know, that, that closeness. It's a respect. I know what Matt would have went through to get to that stage in the fight because I did that myself. It's so, like I, um, after that fight, I know how tough he is. And I suppose, by, and I'm sure vice versa. The same. So, you know, respect type thing, you know what I mean? I know you, uh, you didn't give in. You know, it's it's win, lose, or draw, whatever. You didn't, you didn't give in. As as horrendous as that was, you didn't. You kept going, and you won. But you know, the, the bottom line is, you, you, it's that respect that I, you know, yeah, you're a tough man. Don't forget, that's an experience. 
what very, 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 very few people will ever experience. Not, not many human beings will be punished and pushed to the limits like we was that night. So it's a unique experience. And even though you're happy to admit that it was a fight that, that there wasn't really much upside to for you and that maybe you shouldn't really have taken it and that maybe after that your career didn't go as you wanted it to, all of that considered, it was still worth it. Of course it was, because, because we've left our mark on British boxing forever. People and, will forever talk about that. probably the most fight. famous night of your career. Exactly. Every single time I go to a boxing venue, and I'm sure someone will pull me in on Saturday night, they say, you, that fight with you and Macklin was unbelievable. Every single time without fail, 13 it, years later. Even, the, even though I fought Golovkin, Martinez, Sturm, you know, had great wins against Dasakoyan, and even Alcott, that was a you know, local derby Burma, knocking him out. Like The fight that I'm probably most known for, really, is that fight with Jamie, because that's just boxing gold. It's, it's on Sky Sports every couple of weeks. It's, yeah. you know, it's one of those ones that lives on in the memories, isn't it? It is, and you know what? You lose part of yourself in fights like that. You lose part of yourself what you'll never get back because I, I, I could never dig as deep as that ever again. And um, and so so that, that's where I think that's where that respect comes from. Is, uh, I was never the same human being again after that. Is that something you realise straight away almost or does it take a couple of... Oh, it takes time. I think probably the next time where you have to dig deep a little bit and you start you start questioning yourself thinking can I do this again whereas before you never questioned it you just did it so uh, so I think that comes with age and but your body's sort of once your body's experienced something like that it's always going to be a bit wary and, uh, of, of going through it again because it knows the extent you went to the previous time yeah I mean it, I don't think I ever ever I had some great fights after that and I dug in and the Sturm was an hellacious pace and everything but I don't think I ever was kind of as as man possessed as 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 be prepared to, to I was probably prepared to die that night where I don't think I ever was quite that prepared after that I was prepared to dig in and go you know take it all the way and but there was probably I'm, t- I'm talking minute fractions but just that bit of something there holding back that extra bit but there was there was no hold back there was no stop there was no limit there was just just full hug go till I can't go no more that night well I just hope we get to see a fight like that at the garden just around the corner just spitting distance away on Saturday night I'm not sure how you'd feel if Tommy was in a fight like that I mean because it would just be it'd be such hard work for you as a trainer and obviously you'd want him to come out on, on the winning side of it and that's I mean that that's that's the other flip side of this coin isn't, isn't there? Yeah, is it and, and you know because I've experienced it myself as a fighter it does give you that little window of you're looking into someone's soul, so to speak, and I had it with Carl, with Josh Warrington, you know, just in December. It was horrendous pace. It was such a difficult fight, and uh, I said to him at the end of the ninth round, something along the lines of, listen, this is going to be hell now in this last third of the fight. I'm not asking you to do something I've not done myself, so come on now, dig deep, and something along those lines, and uh, he has mentioned it to me since. And we, we, we had this conversation about when, when I'd started to work with Matt, when Matt was fighting him, he said, you know, if you ask me to dig deep, I'm not going to look at anybody else and respect their opinion as much as I do you because of what we went through. And so, so I get that, I understand that. And uh, you know, I, I, do, I do question how a trainer who's not really, who's never had a professional fight can, can guide someone and, and expect something of someone in the 10th, 11th, 12th round when they've not experienced it themselves. But, you know, that's just my own opinion. I do always find that quite interesting, though, because it, it occurs to me at times that in a really hard fight, say through eight, nine rounds, you've got to the point where maybe not all that much is going in and the message just needs to be really, really simple and something along those lines. Oh, my favourite from recent times, I think, was listening to Ricky Hatton speak to Janet Jakianov eight, nine rounds down against Rorschi Warren when they're fighting for the world title. He'd been down early a couple of times in the first round, uh, but he ground his way back into the fight. And, and Hatton just, just stood in front of him in the corner. Just, let's say through nine rounds, it was roughly around then, and just said, I can't help you now. This is a really hard fight. It's really close. And if you want it, you've got to go out and get it. And that was it. 
he didn't say anything else and, and, and it worked because because Jacqueline have won the fight and I, I guess sometimes it's just that simple yeah have we got time to just tell you a quick little story so of course with Tommy Coyle fought Brizuela and there was eight knockdowns four each and uh, he'd been knocked down twice in the sixth round and he came back to the corner and, it, and it, I could, he was nearly he was, he was in that much pain he was nearly crying you heard that look on his face where he looked like he was just about to burst out crying now six weeks before this fight it was just me and him in the gym and we sat having a conversation while he was wrapping his hands and he said to me how did you do that when you fought Macklin how did you get through that and I said I don't know and he said do you think I'd be able to do something like that and I said I don't know and you don't know I said you won't know if you can do that until you're in that situation he went do you think I will be able to I said I think you will I said but I don't know so fast forward six weeks he's been dropped three times twice in the sixth round and he's in horrendous pain and I, I got him in the corner I sat him down I said take a few deep breaths and I, I whispered to him do you remember that conversation six weeks ago when you asked me if you could do this this is that moment can you do it and he sort of looked at me and nodded his head like that and I went oi can you do it and he went yeah and he screamed a little bit like you did in the corner and I went there you go right come on this is that night let's go so they're those little experiences where you can sort of plant them seeds and so that could have been a turning point I mean he went on and won that fight in the 12th round but he used to say that he wouldn't have gone out if he was deflated and didn't get that motivation in the corner he might have got stopped in the next round so boxing is 99% psychological your, your mind will give up before your body will well I said about 10 minutes ago we'd better leave it there but we really have better leave it there this time Jamie thanks very much for joining us as I said people have been have been asking for this since we started doing Macklin's Take uh, three or four months ago to get the two of you together to talk about that fight because it is one that, that people still watch a lot it's one that people still talk about all the time and they will do for, for, for years to come it's not going anywhere because particularly now in the digital age you can just pull up that fight and watch it whenever you feel like it so best of luck on Saturday thank you really hope Tommy manages to do it against Chris Algieri and then who knows what might be in the pipeline for him after that hopefully it'll be a good night uh, at the Garden and we'll be doing a few of these in New York um, getting a few in the can over the next few days hopefully Macklin has been shaking his extensive contact tree and seeing who uh, seeing who falls out Ludabella we're hoping he's clinging to a branch at the minute Lou isn't he he's just kind of holding well, on for I'm confident I think yeah he's just clinging on to one of you know the lower branches but another vigorous shake and hopefully he'll be there Thomas Hauser I think we might be able to have a chat with too and we'll drop those in over the course of the next few weeks so do give us a rate on iTunes five star ratings that's really all we're interested in that's all we've had so far it makes it easier for people to, to find us and, and we'll keep these coming we'll try and get them coming about once a week because people seem to be enjoying it uh, and we're certainly having fun with it so thanks for listening and we'll catch you again next time Sports Social Podcast Network